0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. So I want to begin with a question, which is, uh, it's a question I think all of us should ask ourselves in our own life, which is, what if you're in the middle of fighting a battle that you've already won? A lot of us are like, we're trying so hard to accomplish some some basic things, but some of us are addicted to struggle. The actual point of accomplishment, we're already there. And yet, we find ourselves on this Ferris wheel, which is going around and around and around and around in the same place, up and down, up and down in the same place, when the reality is is that we're already there in the place that we want to be. So what am I talking about more specifically? Rabbi Green says something beautiful. He says, you know something, every time you open up your eyes in the morning... In bed, you've won. You win. You're alive. You won. There's an awesome Hasidic story, and the truth is, is that I don't remember how it goes, but I remember the very end of it. The very end of it goes like this. There's a a uh, a Jew, a poor Jew, who wins the lottery, and he has to go to a distant place, I think it was St. Petersburg, in order to redeem the winning ticket, and he had two bags of money, like, I don't know what the prize was, let's say it was a thousand rubles, or whatever it was, and he had like 97,000 rubles, or whatever it is, you know, like 98% of it, in one bag, in one pocket, and like the remainder, that's all he could fit into that one pocket, so then he had like a few coins in the other pocket. And I remember the way Rev Shlomo told it. He says that, this, that, that every time he took a few steps, he, he would pat his pocket just to make sure it was still there, you know. Uh, I always liked that detail. <laughs> seems very real. Um, you know, these people who pay for, like, you know, brand new BMWs with, like, the money that's in their sock. You ever hear stories like that? <laughs> um, anyway, so... Uh, it comes Shabbos. Back then, they didn't really have banks. You'd go to the rabbi and you would leave your money with the rabbi, and then after Shabbos, you'd get it back. So he leaves this fortune, whatever it was, you know, ninety nine thousand nine hundred and ninety eight rubles, whatever it was. Like the the, the 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 great bulk of the money, he leaves with the rabbi, and after the whole whole Shabbos, he's worrying: is the is the is the money going to be there when I come when I come for it? You know. After Shabbos, he comes to the rabbi, you know, he wants, the rabbi looks at him, he sees the worried look on his face, but of course the rabbi has the money for him. He gives him the the, the first bag of money, right, which has, you know, 99% of the winnings in it, and then he sees that the Jew is giving him a very suspicious look, like, what about the rest? (laughs) He has the rest for him also, but you think he's going to... He's going to steal like a few coins from him after he gave him, uh, you know, the entire fortune back to him. So, so what's the point of this story? The point is, is that when we wake up in the morning, God is restoring our souls to us. That's the giant bag of money. That's the giant bag of money. And our daily concerns, they're real concerns, but that's, that's the few coins relative to getting our soul back. Get your soul back every single morning. You entrust your soul to God, God gives it back to you a giant victory. It's a giant victory that you get every single day. So, so why am I telling you this now? What is this idea? Is it possible that we're in the middle of this great battle, fighting this battle, that we've actually already won? So, I saw something which struck me as actually shocking. It's a source... Relating to the spies, you know, we just read about the spies. So how does that go? Moshe Rabbeinu, God doesn't tell him to send. God doesn't tell Moshe and the Jewish people to send the spies, the scouts, however you want to explain it. But for whatever reason, Moshe listens to the people and decides to send the spies in order to look at Eretz Israel to figure out the best way to conquer the land. Okay. By the way. That in itself, I think, is a major teaching in terms of our own lives. God gave us the land of Israel. It's all over the Torah. You can read it in a hundred different places. The, Torah, the, the land of Israel is ours. God gave it to us. That's why it's ours. And in fact, the very first Rashi in the Torah is that about having the land of Israel. Why? Because it says God who created the world, the world belongs to him. God can do whatever he wants with the world. All the land belongs to Him. And He gave us Israel. It's His to give. So that's our claim to the land. It's as simple as that. God who made the world, who made Israel, gave it to us. You can't have a better claim than that. Okay. So here's my question. If God gives us the land of Israel, then what does He say? Then He says there's seven nations inside of Israel. Conquer them. And then go and live there. (laughs) Can you imagine, I say to you, and I'm not making fun, I'm just trying to Give you a way to wrap your brain around this. It's like I say, "Oh, oh, my wife, I love you so much. I got you a diamond bracelet. Here it is. Now try to get it from me." <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Pull out a gun. <laughs> Come on, try to get the diamond <laughs> necklace from me. What? It, you? Who gives a gift like that? Right? God gives us the land of Israel. That's basic. I mean, no one disputes that. It's ours. Then he goes, okay, now there's seven nations living there. You go conquer them and, uh, and you know, you live in peace. I mean, so, so, so that's our life in this world. You know, it's true. God gives us the winning lottery ticket every single day. We wake up in bed. We open up our eyes. We won lotto. We won. We won. Now God says, now go out, go out into the world. <laughs> what? You mean I've got to face this guy, and I've I got to face that guy, and I've got to face this desire within myself to, like, destroy myself? I've got to conquer all of these things? That's within the context of you giving me a gift, God? And you know what the answer is? Yes. Uh, I, yes, that's right. So, you know... We've been talking about it a lot, but I think it's very, 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 very crucial to keep in mind. And I'll just try to formulate it very precisely. Before Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, there were commandments. Work and guard the garden. In other words, the Garden of Eden, which was a place of paradise, was a place where work was expected. expected of us. See, we, we tend to think, we get all confused. We go, well, wait a second. I, I, I know the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I, I, I know basic Torah. What happened was, we ate from the, the, the tree, and then Hashem said, as part of the curse, man, you're going to have to work the land by the sweat of your brow. Right? So so what do I think from based on that? I think, well, before we ate from the tree, It was vacation mode. After I eat from the tree, i got to work hard. But from before I ate from the tree, I didn't have to do anything, right? Wrong. 100% wrong. Before we ate from the tree, it says, work and guard the garden. Which was a mitzvah's ase and a mitzvah's lotase. First two, all the do's and all the don'ts. And the rabbis say that contained all 613 mitzvahs. Before eating from the tree, remember such a strong Torah. Reb Shlomo says, "If Gan Eden was such paradise, we're talking about before eating from the tree. If Gan Eden, the Garden Eden, was such paradise, what was the snake doing there?" So the snake, in other words, there was work to do. In other words, in other words, very important. Paradise is not vacation. Paradise is the ideal work environment. It's the most we can attain in this world. Now remember, I, I spoke for a graduation group one time. And, and I said to them, the first thing I said was, in Judaism we don't have any concept of graduate. You know? The idea that all of a sudden I'm finished? When we breathe our last breath after 120, then we're finished. Until then, we're, we're here to accomplish something. Okay. So... So the point is, is that we win the lottery. We get our soul back every single morning. God gives us the land of Israel. And yet we have to work. All right. So. So how does this tie in with the spies? So why did Moshe send out the spies? Why did why did the people want to? Why did he listen to the people? The spies turns out to be the the, 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 biggest, the biggest disaster in the world. Let's just be clear, just historically, the damage the spies did. When we worship the golden calf, like most people who have just a very basic level of, of, of uh, Torah knowledge, they'll tell you, oh yeah, the sin of the golden calf, sure I know all about that. The sin of the spies, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about the sin of the spies. What, what, what is that about? Right? The sin of the golden calf, God more or less forgave us for, and we're still on track to enter into Israel not too long after the sin of the golden calf. After the sin of the spies, God says, "Okay, you're going to have to wander in the desert for 40 years. Everyone knows the Jews wandered in the desert for 40 years before entering Israel. Do you know why? Because of the sin of the spies. A whole generation had to die out before God would let us into the land. Why was that? So very quickly, just so you know, what was so terrible is that God told us over and over again, the land of Israel is good. It's good. This is going to be good for you. The spies came back and they gave a negative report about the land. They said, you know, this is a land that like devours its its inhabitants. And then the people believed the Lashon Hara, the slander against the land. By the way, from this you learn that it's possible to speak Lush and Hara against the sticks and the stones. The land of Israel is, is, is vulnerable, is subject to the laws of not speaking against it. Okay? And you have to understand something. The land of Israel is as much a part of a Jew as your arms and your legs. It's, it's actually part of you. It's not a location. It's not like Amsterdam. Or, you know, that banana on the tree over there. It's not. It's not a location. It's not an object. It's. It's part. It's literally part of you. And interestingly, the the, the laws of lashon harav, not speaking in a bad way, also apply to oneself. You can't speak against yourself. You're not allowed to speak against yourself. It's like you're slandering someone else if you if you do it against yourself. So. So in other words, it makes sense that, that the laws of Lashon Hara would apply to Israel because Israel is literally part of us. So what happened? We, we believed this negative report and we thought, you know something? God, listen to this. This is so important. God means bad for us. God's trying to do us in by taking us to this place. Now, you know, that's so hurtful to Hashem, so to speak. So hurtful. God says, you think I mean bad for you? You think that that's what this relationship is all about? That I'm trying to do you in? Because if, that's, if, if that is the basis of our relationship, we can't do business anymore. If that's really what you think about me. And so that generation doesn't go in. Forty years passes. Wandering in the desert. That generation does not go in. So in other words, if you, if you wonder, I'm, 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 I'm facing this trouble in life. I'm facing that trouble in life. I figured it out. God wants to do me in. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. It isn't. It just isn't. It's a non-starter of an answer. And we figure it out from here. So it could be a million other reasons why whatever's going wrong is going wrong. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday. He had just lost his job. He was visiting here and, you know, he was very upset that he had lost his job. I, I didn't ask him any of the details and I'm sure he has every right to be upset. And uh, he's thinking, maybe I'll move here. And uh, it seems just the tiny bit that I know about the other place, that this actually would be a much better place for him. I said, you know, it could be that, let's say you move here and good things happen. You'll look back on this as that that, that, that was a great thing that happened to you. He said, I know. He said, everyone's saying that to me. But right now, I lost my job. And I totally get that. Totally get that. You know, my father who was a practicing psychologist for 50 years. He told me, he said, one of the things that he regrets saying the most was he went to make a, uh, a, uh, a visit to a house of mourning, you know, a, a shiva call. And I don't remember the ages, but so I'm making these up. But it was they were big. The, the 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 man who had lost his father was something like 80 years old. This is the son. Okay, maybe he was in his 70s. I don't know, but he was at a, a very advanced age. That, that's the son. <laughs> and then I don't even know how old the father was. The father was old. Okay, very old. So he says to... My father doesn't know what to say. You know, these occasions are always awkward. My father says to this man, he says, Basically, I guess my father's tone must have been a little too light-hearted or whatever it was. And, and he said something like, you know, you had him for so many years. Something like that. And the guy looked at my father and he said, I just lost my father. It's like, what do you... Who cares if I'm 20 or if I'm 75? I lost my father. And my father felt bad about that for the rest of his life. He felt bad about that for the rest of his life. Someone who's going through pain, yeah, it's true. It might work out in the end. It may have been the best thing for you, but in the middle, while you're in the middle of it, you're in pain. So... So, anyway. The Jewish people, according to this line of reasoning, didn't want to depend on a miracle in order to conquer the land of Israel. And so, since the normal, what we call, the normal way of doing things, the non-miraculous way of doing things, is that every army, before they invade another place, they go and they look at what the land looks like, and how to formulate a battle plan, since that's the normal way of doing things. So, so it seemed to Moshe Rabbeinu that, that their kavanah, their intention, was actually very holy and very good, especially since we know that the miraculous nature of our existence in the desert, with the man falling from heaven, and the well, and the cloud, and all the rest, that we weren't going to stay like that forever, that God's intention was to trans- transition us from a, super, from a supernatural existence to a normal existence, it made very good sense, actually. It was very compelling. The idea that we would conquer the land where we would live naturally in a natural way. Does everyone hear? It makes, it's, it's very good logic. It makes sense. The problem was it was absolutely disastrous. You know? But, anyway... If you ask yourself why did Moshe Rabbeinu ever agree to this plan to begin with, that's that's the explanation that I heard that sounds the most compelling. Okay. Anyway, here's the point, and here's what I started off with, and we're ready to say it right now. Moshe Rabbeinu sent the spies from a place called Kaddish Barnea, right? And if you look, there's a in the Art Scroll Chumash, there's a nice map of this on nine. 23, and then the explanation I'm going to give is from 925. You want to hear something crazy? Kadesh Barnea, according to some of the opinions, was inside Israel already. They were inside Israel already when they were trying to figure out how to get inside of Israel. Okay, granted, they were on the border and they still had to do some conquering. But I'm just saying on a conceptual level. The idea, what if you're in the middle of a battle that you've already won? What if you're trying to get to a place to that you've already won? Everyone wants to be alive, right? But you're alive. Then you say, well, wait a second, but I want X, Y, and Z. You know... We're going to read about Korach. And Korach is such a contemporary story in so many different ways. I mean, I'm not going to get into this aspect of it, but one of the most amazing things about Korach is he, as you know, he leads a rebellion against Moshe in the desert. And against the Torah, by the way. And one of the things that he says is, we're all holy. We're already holy. So what do we need the Torah for? We're already holy. This is such a modern idea, you know? Like other movements within Judaism, other religions. It's a very modern idea. The idea that we're already holy, so what do you have to tell me what to do for? That's a very important topic in itself. It's not our topic right now, but I'm just trying to tell you how contemporary these ideas are. You know, the Torah itself is just worth saying the Torah is forever and it's eternal and people who are of limited understanding or if they or, or, or they don't have a proper education they don't have the ability to appreciate they, they see the antiquated references in the, in the Torah who are the Jezebites for goodness sakes right? I mean really what, is the, what does that have to the Hittites? are you joking with me? this has anything to do with me today? Right? So that's just the superficial layer of the Torah. It's talking in the language of the day. But every single morsel of Torah, every single element of Torah is forever. That's the inside of the Torah. You know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite things um, is this idea of the reversing vav. This is um, a grammatical... This is a grammatical construct in Hebrew that's unique to Hebrew. You put a vav in front of a, a verb, and it changes. It changes the tense of it. It goes from is it future tense to past tense, something like that. No, no other, no other language has this grammatical construct. I'll tell you, I was so into the reversing vav, and one time. Uh, one time I was on an airplane, and you know how they, they, uh, they, they, they roll out those beverage carts? Now, normally speaking, you're not supposed to be in the aisle when they're rolling them out, you know? But I don't know, maybe, I, I guess I had to go to the bathroom or something like this. I got trapped between two beverage carts. All right? So, I mean, it was weird, you know? So I'm, I'm stuck, and I can't walk like, forward, and I can't walk backwards. And I look to my right, and there's a guy with a Hebrew grammar book open, and it's open to the page of the reversing vav. And I'm like, whoa, I love the reversing vav. So the reversing vav is a grammatical construct which talks about the eternality of the Torah. Because God found, he found, he created a way to make the Torah relevant for all time. It's talking about the past and the future, the future and the past. Right? Because it's forever. And that's expressed in the grammatical rules of the Torah itself. So, so there we are, inside of Israel, while we're trying to figure out how to get into Israel. That's the idea that you've won this battle. You've won the battle. So let's get back to Korach. So Korach is so modern. So so on the one hand, he's just questioning the Torah itself, right? That's one level. That's a huge level. That's We've spoken on that before, but has to be gone over and over, because this is really one of the reigning theological issues of the world today. You know? The next issue, though, is is something also extremely contemporary about Korach, which was Korach was as rich as any person has ever been in history. And he was smart. And you know how connected he was? He was one of the people holding the Holy Ark with the Ten Commandments in it. I mean, He was in the inner, 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 inner circle. He's holding the Ark. And by the way, the secret if you ever get a chance to hold the Ark is that it holds you. You don't hold it. If you have it in mind that you're holding it, you know, you're signing your own death warrant, literally. It holds you. And by the way, that's a very special kavana. For anyone who ever gets the opportunity to lift the Torah, the Aliyah, Hagmah, right? You have in mind before you lift it up that it lifts me up. I'm not lifting it up. Right? What's the point? The point is that Korach wanted more. He's as rich as you get. He's as connected as you get. Ah, but there was something that he didn't have. Isn't that, isn't that you and me? Isn't that you and me? I wake up in bed. I get my soul back. I win the lottery. Ah, but have I been appointed to this board yet? <laughs> have I been recognized by that person yet? I mean, how more fundamental do you want to get? So so a person has a choice every day of their life. I can have everything that I want and be miserable because I'm always going to want more. And how do you how is it that you want more? Because that implies that there's something that you don't have yet. You see, the Gemara understood human nature better. Well, it's, it's the Gemara, right? It's the Talmud. So it's from Hashem. Hashem who made us understands us. He created us that way. It says that whatever a person has, they want twice as much. You know, i just tell you in my own spiritual journey that, um, that one of the big, biggest breakthroughs that I made was when I realized that the rabbis understood me better than I understood myself. You know, when they tell you that human beings are like this, believe them. Also, this is a something for people who are dating right now. This is uh, from a less august source. My sister-in-law, but it's, it's still, I think, is my opinion is that it's accurate. She says that if someone tells you something on a date, this is for men or for women, for instance... You're too good for me. Believe them, right? Or I'm no good for you. Believe them. Believe them. Um, they're not trying to be charming or modest. How about I'm perfect for you? Yeah, I'm perfect for you. Okay, that's something else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that 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 can be investigated. You know. <laughs> They could be right. They could be right. You know. I know one thing that some people like to say uh, at the point of a breakup is they tell the person, "You're never going to find anyone as good as me." Right? Someone said that to my wife before me, and I guarantee you, I was better than that guy. <laughs> in all modesty, in all my—I'm talking mathematically. I promise you. I promise you. <laughs> So, um, so Korach, you know, this idea that you want twice as much, so I've shared it with you, but, but we have to recognize this about ourselves. So when the rabbis tell you something about yourself, believe them. Believe them. Just be honest. Say, okay, I have to be humble. This is true about me. Okay. It's not a bad thing. It, it's a, it becomes a very helpful thing because then you know how to proceed better. So it's a great it's a great illustration. I read it about Rabbi Riskin. He said when he was young, he was in cheder, and the rabbi in the class said to the class, "Who has more money? Someone who has five dollars or someone who has ten dollars?" So it's too easy a question. You have to be suspicious <laughs> about questions that are that easy, you know, because they have to be trick questions. So he knew it was a trick question, but he didn't know. Why it was a trick question? So the answer the rabbi said was the person who's richer is the person who has five dollars, not ten dollars. But okay, so I'm still not with you. What's what's the reason? The reason is because the rabbis say whatever you have, you want twice as much. So the person who has ten dollars is in the whole ten dollars, whereas the person who has five dollars is, is only in the whole five dollars. But that's a real thing. That's not a joke. That's not a joke. That's a real thing. So if you recognize about yourself, you see, one of the most uh, pernicious, toxic, evil things that, that modern advertising tells us, in order to get the money out of our pockets, to boost their bottom line, they destroy us with so many different Thoughts, But one of the main ways they destroy us is when they say, you can have it all. But that flies in the face of this concept that we've just learned. That whatever you have, you want twice as much. And that a person dies never being able to attain that. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean that one shouldn't aspire and one shouldn't be ambitious and one shouldn't work hard. You have to do all those things. Remember, there's always what we call a dialectic in Torah. You've got one side... But that doesn't mean that the other side isn't true. It means you have to keep on working hard and harder and harder and harder. Because if you sell yourself short, after 120, you stand before the heavenly throne. You know, the famous thing with, I'm forgetting the rally, it's a famous story. He he. His parents, because he wasn't studying as a child were crying and he was listening by the steps to his parents crying because the parents realized, what can we do? Our child is so smart, but he's not applying himself. You know, back then, there was a, um, there was a, like a, uh, a turning point when a child, I don't know how old it was, something like 12 years old, something like that, maybe bar mitzvah, I'm not sure, that, that at a certain point, the child would either continue to learn Torah... Or learn a trade, right? So you become a blacksmith or or a shoemaker or something like this. Or you stay in the yeshiva. Or, then, then they had variations of it. If you wanted to continue to learn, but you were put on the blacksmith track, then you could learn, but you had to pay for your education, and most people couldn't do that. Whereas the other track would be supported by the community because those were going to be the, the rabbis and the, and the leaders. Right? So, so they couldn't afford it. They knew that their child was capable of being on this higher track, well, not higher track, but this Torah track, which is what they desired for their child. And they knew he was about to become a shoemaker. And he heard them crying and crying and crying and crying, and he said, he said, okay, I'm going to dedicate myself and everything like this. And Anyway, the point was that later on in his life he had written something like, I don't know, eleven books, something like this. Classics. So one of the biggest rabbis, I'm forgetting his name right now. It's a famous story. And he used to say to his students, If I had become a shoemaker and in Shemayam in heaven, they would have asked me at the end of my life, Where are your books? Where are those six books or eleven books, whatever it was? And I would have said, What are you crazy? I'm a shoemaker. So believe me, I'm not, uh, I'm not telling you, uh, I'm never going to get what I, what I want, and it's too much, and this and that. No, you're held accountable to do the maximum that you can do. The maximum. But you have to understand that within putting in effort and trying and working very hard, there's always going to be more that you want that you don't have. And you have to just live with that. And not use that as a way to destroy yourself. Korach destroyed himself over that. Because listen, here you see you have proof. And you can plug in any modern celebrity into this into this category almost, you know? And all the young ones, they're all dropping like flies, you know? It's really So, so you have the richest guy. He's one of the richest guys who ever lived Korach. He's super smart. He's a lady. He's one of the people holding the Arun Kodesh. I mean, you can't, you can't get... That's literally, if you look at the map of the encampment of Israel, I'm not, I'm not using a turn of phrase when I say the inner circle. That was, that was the, the inner circle. I'm talking in terms of map making right now. That was it. And he wants more and it's not enough. Because he didn't realize that, that that there is a desire within a person where they won't fully be satisfied. And that that's not a terrible thing. That's just one of those things that's supposed to drive you on to further greatness. But you have to understand there's going to be that annoying thing there. And you don't have to medicate against that. Or self-medicate against that. You know, there are people who have arthritis, things like that. So, they live with the arthritis. You have like an existential kind of like annoying thing. Okay, that's normal. See, one of the biggest problems and why, the the reason why recovery groups are so great, of every stripe, is because I'm so, there's something so healing to know that this thing that I'm going through is normal. That other people go through this thing. Because then I go, okay, well then I can deal with it. This is something that everyone goes through. But if I don't know that this is something that everyone goes through, then I'm going to make the worst choices. Because I don't know how to categorize that emotion within my own brain. That could be a terrible thing. I'll, I'll, oh, I can have it all. The guy with the beer bottle and the nice tan told me. So if I don't have it all, I've got to do something. I've either got to have it all, and I can't, so maybe I'll become a thief. Or the other alternative is I'll have to kill that emotion inside my brain, which is telling me I can have it all. So now I'll become an addict. But what if I just find out, hey, everyone's got that. God just built that in you. Everyone's got it. Just use it to drive yourself on to further greatness, that's all. Then I go, oh, you mean that's normal? I'm supposed to have five fingers on my left hand? That's okay. I don't have to have six like my freak neighbor. (laughs) You know, I believe, I'll say something kind of controversial right now. I believe that certain, certain people who are blessed with outlandish good fortune, I'm talking about outlandish good fortune, right? that, that, that that's a bit of a test for everyone else. Because you see, 99.9% of the people don't have that particular life. Right, which means, and God can do everything. God gives a heart to every single person. God's got no shortage. You know, like I kid around with, with with my wife sometimes. If we don't have a Lamborghini, it's not because God didn't make enough Lamborghinis to go around. If we don't have one. That's because we're not supposed to have one, or whatever it is. It's not because there's a shortage. And that goes with cash also. There's no shortage of cash. You know, God gives the cash to whoever needs it and whatever it is, and that's what it is. But it's not because there's a shortage of cash. You know, if you want that eye touch, I don't care if the store is sold out of them. If God wants you to have one, you're going to have one. You know, one of the the time I realized this in my own life was I got a check from the government of France for seventy five dollars because of some copyright law and some show that I had written. And I thought to myself, if God wants to give me money, he's going to find a way to give me money. I mean, I just got a check from the government of France, for goodness sakes. I mean, what sense does that make? Zero sense. Right? So, if I haven't got it, there's a reason. (laughs) Anyway, the point is, the point is, and this would be such a helpful book, this would be such a great book, I, I wish this book existed, which would be, you know, you have a book called Grey's Anatomy, it's a, they made a TV show based on it, right, or a play on the words anyway. Gray's Anatomy is, anyone who goes to medical school, that's the classic book that tells you what's in your body you got your heart over here, your stomach over there, right? All the organs. That's the book. There should be a Gray's Anatomy of the Spirit, which tells you, you look it up. Oh, just like my heart is in the middle of my chest, right? I also have a desire within me to want twice what I have right now. So that I can just read this list, right? And I can know what's normal. Because I thought, oh, okay, that's just that. Right? Then I don't have to destroy my life. Write it. yeah. Bless me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you, it would be very, very helpful. It would be very, very helpful. People have to know what normal is. You know, I'll tell you something. You want to hear something funny about me? I think it's funny anyway. I tell you all the time, my father was a psychologist. So one of my reactions to having a father who was a psychologist was believing that I was the single most normal person in the entire world. That's not normal to think (laughs) about. So here, while I'm trying to reassure myself of how normal I am, I didn't think I was normal. I thought I was the single most normal person in the world. That's not normal. (laughs) So, anyway, what does it all boil down to? Beautiful bit of imagery. Rabbi Wolfson said, you know, Korach, who wanted more and more. So listen. So are you going to tell me Korach who was at Mount Sinai? He was, even, he was at Mount Sinai, okay? Korach who was at Mount Sinai doesn't know that a person wants more? But then, that's the first basic level. First you got to know it. Then you've got to deal with the challenges that confront it. See, just knowing it itself, that's, that's level one. Then, once you've got that, then you've got to guard against the tests that come um, and confront him. You understand? So, so, so he, he knew it, but he didn't guard against it. Um, sufficiently. Sufficiently. So it says, he's likened, the Ari takes this pasuk from the Tehum, um, Tzadik, Katamar, Yifrach, and the last three letters of those three words, that a Tzadik, a righteous person, is like a, 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 a palm tree which blossoms. The last three letters of Tzadik, Katamar, Yifrach, spells the word Korach. So a person's running this way and a person's running that way. But uh, a tzaddik stays in his spot. He stays, he's a palm tree who blossoms in his spot. Right? Which means that if you've been given X, that's your spot. Become a tzaddik in that spot. Okay, so this guy's planted in the front yard of a $10 million mansion, and you're planted in front of a freeway off-ramp Right? <laughs> but you got to be beautiful where you're planted, man. That's what it is. Be beautiful where you're planted. Right? Because the one from above is the one who planted you. And he's a better gardener than you are. You know, there's a story about... Uh, Rabbi Eliezer in the, in the Talmud, he was a tax collector. And uh, they say that he, you know, got mad at people who weren't uh, paying taxes to the point where he wanted to tell the government that there may be some Jews there who are not paying taxes. And, you know, that's the halacha. You've got to pay taxes. Jewish law says you've got to pay the government taxes. So... So he wasn't just being an agent for the government. He was working as his role as a rabbi and, you know, making sure that the people were doing Jewish law, which includes paying taxes to the government. So the other people weren't so happy about the idea that he may be possibly talking to the government and getting his people in a bad situation. And he said, I'm just doing some gardening. You understand, like, if these people are, like, not doing the right thing, so to speak, metaphorically, they're like weeds, I'm pulling the weeds, I'm doing some gardening. And you know what they said back to him? Let the gardener do the gardening. Right? So, anyway, whatever the right decision is there, that's not the point of me bringing up the story. But if we've been planted in a certain place, right, that's the gardener doing the gardening and we have to excel, and we've got to be beautiful there. Okay, have a great week, guys.